This is Joseph Clare, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Theology. Welcome back, everyone. This is Joseph Clare, your host of George Fox Talks Theology. Very special episode today with Dr. Nancy Percy from Houston Baptist University. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate I'm, it. I'm going to tell them about you for a minute and then open with a question about your own Christian testimony. Nancy Percy is the author of Love Thy Body, most recently answering hard questions about life and sexuality, which I think will be the foreground of our conversation today because it feels so timely and relevant still. Uh, Earlier works, many of them, uh, including The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, Total Truth, uh, two ECPA Gold Medallion Award winners, including How Now Shall We Live, co-authored with Harold Fickett and Chuck Colson. Um, Your works have been translated into 17 languages. That's pretty exciting. (laughs) Impact, influence. She's a professor and scholar in residence now at Houston Baptist University. Um, A former agnostic, um, Percy has spoken at universities such as Princeton, Stanford, USC, Dartmouth, uh, speaking about culture and her faith. She was highlighted as one of the five top women apologists for Christianity today and was hailed by in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. It's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. (laughs) A lot of qualifications, but it doesn't diminish uh, the truth of that statement. And that's why I'm so excited to have you here. So before we dive into the book and the subject of the human person and sexuality, I wonder if you could share about uh, your former agnosticism and how you came to be a Christian. Oh, yes. I'd love to talk about this subject Um, because I gave, I was raised in a Lutheran home, Um, a Scandinavian Lutheran. Mm Mm-hmm. My grandfather lived here in Portland. Oh, really? Okay. He was a pastor at a hospital here, and he also started LBI, uh, LBI Seattle, hmm. Lutheran Bible Institute. So, um, but but uh, it was a very ethnic religion in the sense that my parents were almost more Swedish than they were Christian, if mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Yep. <laughs> and so when I started having questions when I was in high school, I was attending a public high school, and I just started wondering, how do I know Christianity is true? Hmm. All my teachers are secular. All my textbooks are secular. And I wanted to know why we thought we were right, you mm-hmm. know, that, that there was a God mm-hmm. and that Christianity was true. That's it. And the, the sad thing was that none of the adults in my life could answer that question. Hmm. Um, you know, I guess Lutherans weren't much into apologetics. Um, but my, my family's response sort of was, what do you mean? We're Swedish. You know? <laughs> <laughs> my wife's from Minnesota, so I can imagine this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah both my parents, uh, <laughs> my parents met in Minnesota. Okay. There you go. <laughs> uh, my dad's Swedish. My mom's Norwegian. Mm. Um, so uh, I, I talked to a Christian university professor. I said, you know, why? You, I asked him point blank, why are you a Christian? Mm. He said, works for me. I said, that's it? That's all you got? (laughs) And I had a chance to talk to um, a a Lutheran seminary dean. Mm. And I thought I'd get a more substantial answer. But all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. Mm. Uh, As if it was a a psychological phase Mm -hmm. that I would outgrow. Mm. So I finally decided, uh, and this was about halfway through high school, that maybe Christianity just didn't have any answers. And that it seemed to me a matter of intellectual honesty. Mm. That's actually how I thought of it. Mm. 
a matter of intellectual honesty that if you don't have good reasons for something, you shouldn't believe it, mm-hmm. whether it's Christianity or, any, or anything else. So I very consciously, very deliberately gave up my Christian background and started on a search for truth. I decided it was up to me mm-hmm. <laughs> to find truth. Um, and I literally started well, walking down the hallway in the public high school I attended and pulling books off the philosophy shelf mm. because I thought if I can't get any adults to talk to me about these things. Maybe these, you know, dead guys, (laughs) maybe these dead guys can help me. And isn't that the job of philosophy anyway, to answer questions like, what is truth? Mm. How do we know it? Mm. You know, what's the meaning of life? Uh, Is there a foundation for ethics or is it just true for me, true for you? Mm. And I pretty quickly decided that if there was no God, the answer to all those questions was no, there is no meaning to life. We're just a you know, uh, cosmic accidents flying through space. Mm. Uh, there is no foundation for ethics. Um, there's not even any foundation for knowledge. Mm. You know, if all I have is my puny brain <laughs> and mm. the bra- vast scope of space and time, mm. how is it possible for me to have any kind of objective, universal, absolute knowledge? Mm. Impossible, ridiculous. And that's how I actually thought of it as a teenager. I thought, ridiculous. Mm. Um, so by the time, uh, several years later, I ended up at uh, Francis Schaeffer's ministry, Le Brie, mm. in Switzerland. Mm. And um, uh, so I was a thoroughgoing relativist and agnostic mm. and skeptic mm. <laughs> um, by the time I got there. So I was a perfect person. <laughs> for, yeah, he, for, was, he was ready for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was also very postmodern. Um, you know, I, I decided truth didn't matter anyway. So, mm. you know, you just find what's what, what makes you feel better. Um so uh, we had lived in Europe, so I was going to, I'd gone back to Germany, um, and that's how I stumbled across Labrie. Hmm. Um, and I, I was I was stunned by this place. I had never encountered any sort of apologetics. I had no idea hmm. that Christianity could be uh, defended, supported with good reasons, arguments, hmm. evidence, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that it had answers to the philosophical questions. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I was so stunned because they, they knew the questions better than I did. <laughs> you mm. know, they started coaching me on what the questions were, you know, and then giving me the answers. Uh, I was so impressed, in fact. Um, and, and as you know, uh, Schaefer taught what, what is now um, coined, um, the, the term was coined for what he did, uh, cultural apologetics, mm-hmm. because he also talked a lot about the arts. And he was looking at how ideas percolate down through a culture, mm. through art, literature, movies, music, and so on. And and I was um, I was attending the Heidelberg Conservatory of Music mm. in Germany. I play the violin. Gotcha. And so the the artistic approach really spoke to me as well. Mm. I was so impressed that I left <laughs> after a month. Gotcha. After a month, um, I was afraid I might be drawn in emotionally because it was so appealing. I had never seen a Christianity that was intellectually rich, mm. culturally attuned. And not only that, but, you know, um, Labrie, uh, uh, you actually lived with families. Labrie mm. is not a single building. It's just a, a, a collection of homes. <laughs> Uh, spread around this little Swiss village mm. as people opened their homes. First, Schaefer opened his home to, to people to, to, to actually live with them. And then as other people joined the ministry, they opened their home. And so it's just a series of homes where you live with a f- Christian family. Mm. And so a lot of people said that what was persuasive was not just the apologetics, mm-hmm. but seeing a quality of love and Christian community that they had never encountered before. Mm. 
And I would say the same thing, yeah. Seeing a quality of love that I'd never encountered among Christians before. So all that to say, it was very appealing, and so I fled. (laughs) I I was afraid I might be drawn in emotionally because it was so appealing, but Christianity had already let me me down Hmm. already once. And so I was not going to do this unless I was totally intellectually convinced it was true. Hmm. So I went back home. I went back to the States, and— I, but through Libri, I had discovered there was such a thing as apologetics. I had discovered Lewis mm. and Chesterton. Mm-hmm. Os Guinness was at Libri at the time. Mm. And, you know, he had written his first, he wrote his first book, The Dust of Death. Um, so just through my own reading, I finally realized I was intellectually convinced. And then I thought, where do I find Christians? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now that I've become one, mm. where do I find Christians? Because I wasn't connected to a church or anything. And I thought, well, I knew some back at Libri. Mm. So a uh, year and a half later, I went back to Libri mm. and stayed four months. And that's when I really got grounded in Christian worldview. And, you know, so that this background explains why I'm so passionate about apologetics and want, you know, I really want to help young people who have the same kind of questions I had. Mm. And it's also why we, we were talking before the program about cultural apologetics. That's why I'm also so passionate about cultural mm-hmm. apologetics because it, it brings together ideas and the arts. It brings mm. together the cognitive and the creative. Yeah. And so it addresses the whole person. Um, and that's why it's so, it's fascinating. It, it, you know, the whole person is engaged, not just sort of logic and reason. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, at, at Houston Baptist University where I teach now. Uh, we, the program was set up mm. to teach cultural apologetics. Yeah. Now, was there a specific uh, argument or um, set of evidence or a reason or something in that period you remember being the one that like tipped the scale or was it not like that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so when I arrived, I was a totally relativist. And I remember that was one of the first arguments I had with the the staff, you mm. know, it's not just Schaefer, but the staff that he had trained, um, arguing that there was no such thing as right or wrong. It's just true for me, true for you. Mm-hmm. When I was back in high school, I was the one arguing that with my friends, you know. So <laughs> I had a friend one day who said, oh, she, oh, she's so wrong. And I jump in and I say, no, you can't say anyone's right or wrong. You know? um, so that was the first thing I uh, argued with when I arrived at Labrie. And in many ways, um, in many ways, it's not a, a difficult <laughs> position to uh, to show that it's it's false it's mistaken mm. um, because nobody is a consistent moral relativist mm. we are made in god's image and we do have Schaefer used to call it moral motions mm. that was his word of saying you know he's not saying we hold a particular moral idea but we all know that there are things that are right or wrong mm-hmm. No matter how skeptical you are, or uh, Lewis, remember in the in mere Christianity, he starts with that with the example of we all have heard people quarreling, and uh, if if you you know if if I steal if I if you steal something from me and you're a moral relativist, you think that's okay, but if I steal something from you, <laughs> yeah, you're going to say, hey, that's not right, that's not fair, stop it. <laughs> Um, so they both make a very similar argument uh, that nobody really can live as a consistent moral relativist. And after all, isn't that one of the main tests of a worldview? Can you live it consistently? Uh, it's kind of a pragmatic test. Mm. You know, you, you, just like you test a scientific theory by taking it into the lab and seeing if the chemicals behave the way the theory says they should. Right. You take a worldview into the world and you say, can we live with this consistently? 
in a way that doesn't destroy our humanity. Mm. Um, and so one of the phrases that Schaefer used to use was universal human experience. You test a worldview in part, you, mm. you test it two, two ways, you know, is it logically consistent? Mm. It does have to hold, hold together logically, but then you test it against the real world. How does it measure up against universal human experience? Not just your personal experience, right? Yeah. Your personal private experience, but there are certain things that are universal. All people, all cultures, all civilizations have had a moral, a sense of morality. Right. You couldn't have laws without a you couldn't have a civilization right. without a sense of morality, without people being held to, you know, some things are right or wrong. And so I pretty quickly realized, okay, if one test of a worldview is can you live it, you can't live consistently with moral relativism. So that would be, so that falsifies it. Right. <laughs> so that was the first one. Uh, skepticism, like I said, I came mm. as a complete skeptic. Um and again, you can't live it. <laughs> Nobody mm. is a complete skeptic. Mm. Nobody, I mean, even Hume, you know, David Hume is our classic skeptic yeah. in, in uh, Western philosophy. And even he said, this, uh, I can reason my way to my skeptical conclusions, you know, when I'm in my study. <laughs> you know, like how can my brain, you know, how can I, if, if, if he was an empiricist, right? So he believed that the only truth is what we can see, hear, weigh, and measure, you know, my sense data. But, but how do I know my sense data are true to the external world? Yeah. I can't step outside my head <laughs> and compare my sense data to the real world. So there's no way for me to actually know mm. whether my sense data are true. Right. I'm stuck in my own head. <laughs> and, 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 then, <clears throat> and then Hume says, but when I go out into the real world and start, remember his, his example was when I play backgammon with my friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't be a complete skeptic. Mm. You can't sit on this chair unless you have some knowledge, some confidence that it's going to hold you up. You can't, you know, nobody steps in front of the uh, the oncoming truck. Mm. <laughs> you know, they know that, that's dangerous. Nobody jumps off a building. You know, everybody holds their breath underwater. I mean, the external world does impact us and there are certain things we can and cannot do. Yeah. And these are things we know. Uh, Thomas Reed, is who argued against... Yeah, against Hume, um, basically said, "Look, we can't live as complete skeptics." Yeah, that kind of common sense realism argument. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. His his point was there are some things we can't not know. Right. Some things that we, you know, we know and that are impressed on us just by living in the world. Um, I mean, the Christian the Christian understanding is we're made in God's image and we live in God's world, mm. and so there are certain constraints that the external world forces on us. And these are things we know, uh, you know, whether our philosophy supports it or not, mm -hmm. we know them. And so that's another, uh, I realized that skepticism was untenable. Mm. And determinism, okay, I'd had enough science background. You mentioned that one of my books was The Soul of Science. I had enough science background that I was also a complete determinist. We don't have free will anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's what materialism gives you, unfortunately, yeah. And so, and so I had to argue that one out as well. Um, and again, nobody lives as a determinist. Sure, yeah. Even people who, you know, are, are philosophical naturalists and hold determinism. And in my book, uh, I, my, I have a book called Finding Truth. And um, I quote several, what's fascinating is I quote several philosophers who admit uh, they're they're naturalists, they're scientists, but they admit that they cannot live with their own with their own naturalism. Yeah. Uh, and and one of them says, "You can't live as a determinist as a determinist, even if determinism is true, <laughs> because we make we make choices from the minute we wake up in the morning. 
Um, John Searle, uh, the philosopher at Mm. at USC, Mm -hmm. says this. He says, um, if you're talking to someone who is a determinist, then tell them next time they go to a restaurant, just say, bring me whatever the laws of nature have determined I will get. (laughs) <laughs> That's his argument against naturalism yeah, right. or determinism. Um, so, yeah, I, I did. I, I went through these various isms. Um, and then, and if you really want to know what made the difference, the final tipping point was <laughs> the Trinity. Hmm. <laughs> this is one that, you know, people think the Trinity is one of those sort of oddball, weird, mystical yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, doctrines that Christians have to believe, but they don't really understand. Sure. But Schaefer said, look, the Trinity is just the classic philosophical question of the one and the many, Mm. which has been discussed by philosophers since the ancient Greeks. Mm -hmm. Is reality really one, you know, a single unity, like pantheism? Mm. Or is it many, like modern atomism? Um, That's that's been one of the, uh, sometimes called the problem of unity and diversity. Mm -hmm. it's been a classic problem. I, when I arrived at Libri, I'd studied philosophy enough to know that that had been a classic problem since the beginning. Mm. You know, is you know wh- why is it that reality is in a sense um, like take take simple examples like dogs are all different, and yet that we can group them. Mm. There, there's something that is a unity among them, and yet we can recognize the diversity. Why is it that you, that uh, that reality is structured in this way? You know, yep. it's not it's not just random. It has an order. Um, and Schaefer said, well, <laughs> every philosophy ends up either stressing unity or diversity. Mm. Christianity is the only one that says ultimate reality has a perfect balance mm. of the one and the many. You know, the, the one God in three persons mm-hmm. is a philosophical basis for saying, for, for explaining why reality is structured the way it is. Mm. Thought, Beautiful. Yeah. This is really impressive. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Wow. Christianity really does have, have answers on all of these questions that I brought with me yeah. when I went to Labrie. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. And I think the the challenge I take it is to keep those questions alive and serious and interesting for a culture so that they see how Christianity satisfies these most, you know, sort of deepest curiosities that we have as people. Um, and so sometimes it requires us clarifying the questions before you can set up the beauty of the answer. Mm-hmm. One of the things you said in the beginning of your book, Love Thy Body, I want to shift gears, um, is that underneath the morality is not just a set of rules, but it's a worldview. And so the things you've been talking about that you learned from from Schaefer and thought about materialism, determinism, naturalism versus a Christian, you know, view of the world. Um, these are fundamentally different views of the world, views of reality. How does that argument about um, worldviews work its way out and love thy body? How does worldview relate to our perception of the body? Yeah, what I learned, um, you know, let me back up. Yeah, um, sure. To Schaefer said the most important um, thing that Christians need to understand in order to communicate effectively to the non-Christian world today is that the truth itself has been split. Mm. That um, in, I mean, secular in secular academia is called the fact-value split. Mm-hmm. Um, P- Christianity taught that you know the cosmos is a single unified system. There's a natural order and there's a moral order, um, but there it's a unified whole, and therefore truth is unified whole. After the scientific revolution, many people began to say, no, 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 the only 
reliable knowledge we have is science, you know, empirically testable facts. Mm. Um, well, what do you do then with moral and spiritual truths? You can't stuff them in a test tube or study them under a microscope. So many people began to say, no, they're not really truths. Mm. You know, they're just your personal preference, mm-hmm. you know, your personal experience. And so truth, is, truth was split then, you know, the moral order from the natural order. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, Schaefer used to use that. And he's not the only one. Uh, many philosophers have used the uh, metaphor of two stories in a building. Mm-hmm. You know, so the lowest story, mm-hmm. if you can kind of picture this in your mind, um, two levels. The lowest story is objective what we know by science and reason and facts. Mm -hmm. And then uh, moral and spiritual truths have been tossed into the upper story where they're not really truths anymore. They're just, Mm -hmm. you know, your personal, your personal values. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was kind of the background when I when I started approaching the moral issues, I was I was stunned to find that, well, if if your concept of truth is split, it applies everywhere. Mm. So when I picked up the moral issues, I discovered that to understand the secular worldview, it has a split view of the human person. Mm. Um, and it, it's sometimes called, uh, you know, so in the lower story, what we know by science is the body, mm-hmm. the physical reality. And then it, in the upper story is what we, you know, how we value people, how we give them moral status. And so it was called the body-person dualism, mm. the body in the lower story, the person in the upper story. And um, to, to illustrate, I mean, we can jump in with where that is the most obvious, which is the transgender issue. Mm-hmm. Because transgender activists argue explicitly that your body has nothing to do with your gender identity. Mm. You know, that the, there's a split between mm-hmm. the body and the person. That your body, you know, may be male or female, and that tells you nothing about your gender identity, you know, who you are as a person. Um, a, there's a BBC documentary that says at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. Mm. At war. Mm. That's a huge, you know, conflict between your mind and your body. And of course, in that war, it's the mind that wins. Mm -hmm. The mind wins, your body doesn't really count. Mm. And that's why we have, you know, kids coming home from kindergarten, first grade, or coming home from school these days saying things like, "Um, my teacher told me that just because you have boy parts doesn't mean you're a boy, just because you have girl parts doesn't mean you're a girl. Mm. So mommy, what am I? You know, there was actually a news account of a girl, a first grader, Mm. who came home and said, mommy, what am I? Um, please take me to the doctor so we can find out what I am. Mm. And it was in the news because the family was taking the school to court for uh, emotional distress. The, the daughter was like, I, you know, because of what I'm learning about um, gender in school, I don't, I don't know what, you know, I don't know if I'm a boy or a girl anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, there, there's a Facebook page. Uh, by the way, you, you've probably heard of the trend uh, towards babies, babies, mm. gender neutral parenting. Mm. So you don't, this is not telling your child whether they're a boy or a girl. Mm. Let, them, let them figure it out on their own, you know. Um, and there's a Facebook page for that, for these families. And on the Facebook page, it literally says, there was, direct quote, there was no such thing as biological sex. Mm. It's just a social construction. So that's where we are now is where um, the body versus the person has become so extreme mm-hmm. that, um, that they can contradict each other. Mm that your mind can be at war with your body. Um, And so the Christian, what what would the Christian response to that be? Mm. The Christian response should be, why accept such a demeaning view of the body? Mm. This is God's creation. Uh, There's a trend now, uh, you may know, towards um, Mm. detransitioning. People who 
transitioned and then decided they made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And I read an interview with a, f- a 14-year-old girl mm. who had transitioned at age 11 mm. and identified as a trans boy for three years and then reclaimed her identity as a girl. And in this interview, she said, the turning point came, and this is a direct quote, mm. the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Mm. And unfortunately, this interview came out after my book, mm. <laughs> but it would have been a, a great quote to mm-hmm. have in a book called Love Thy Body. Right. But what it means, it was on a very secular liberal website. And what it means is even secular people are beginning to see that the, the, the core of the transgender debate is, do you, do you value your body? Mm. They're even start, you're starting to see this on, in secular websites. They say transgenderism is body hatred. Mm. That, mm-hmm. that they're using that phrase, body mm. hatred. So even they are realizing that the answer to transgenderism is to have a higher view of the body. Mm. So you say this two-story worldview that characterizes the modern predicament where you've got body down on the lower level, kind of whatever can be known through science, it's material, it's there, it's sort of uh, a sort of um, contingent in some way. And the upper story is the mind, reason, the spirit or something like that. You say that this denies the goodness of creation in the body, right? Um, And that that's actually, ironically, Christians who are kind of been characterized as the body haters, you know, the puritanical self-flagellators are the ones who in a moment like this are saying the body's not only good, but it provides like intelligent resource to guide the moral life. Like you can look to the body um, as this site, this receptacle, this information about how to live the good life. Um, could you say more about that? Yeah, yeah, I love the way you're putting it. Um, that's beautifully stated. Um, yeah, so well, let's let's tie it to another example. Let's tie it to homosexuality. So you know, even my homosexual friends agree that on the level of biology, anatomy, chromosomes, mm-hmm. um, males and females are counterparts to one another. That is how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. To embrace a same-sex identity then is to contradict that design. Mm. It's to say, why should my body inform my identity? Mm. Why should my body have any say in my moral choices? Mm. And so what we have to help people realize is that's a profoundly disrespectful view Mm. of the body. And that, as you said, our response is not just to say, don't do it, it's a sin. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, right. um, It's against the Bible. You know, it's not just these negative messages, but the positive message of, no, the Christian is, the Christianity is saying we should respect our body, live in harmony with our body. Um, I have several examples in the, in the book, um, but one of them is a young man who lived, uh, who was, who identified as homosexual for many, for many years. Um, but uh, today is uh, married and has three kids. And he said, uh, it, what's interesting about his story is he was raised in a gay-affirming family and mm. attended a gay-affirming church. Mm-hmm. So it, his change was not driven by um, you know, shame or guilt. Because you know, many homosexuals will say, if you change, you're driven by self-loathing. Yep. But he didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Mm. So why did he change? He said, um, I came to see that God had made me as a male. And that means I was designed to interact with a female, <laughs> regardless of what my feelings were. Uh, he said, I decided to take my identity from my body. Mm. Um, 
instead of trying to change my feelings, you know, which rarely works, I just chose to take my identity from my body. And as he's, here's how he puts it. I decided to accept my body as a good gift from God. Mm. And he said, eventually my feelings followed suit. Mm. And so that is really at the core of the debate is, is, do we live in a universe created, uh, you know, that's a product of blind material forces and, and therefore our body has no intrinsic dignity, has no intrinsic purpose, mm. or do we live in a cosmos created by a loving God, which is therefore intrinsically good mm. and does have an intrinsic purpose mm-hmm. that is meant to inform us in terms of who we are and how we're meant to live. Yeah. And you say that, I mean, forthrightly in the book, which I love is because of our view of creation, we can look to nature and science, ultimately the study of nature um, for moral guide or moral clues, at least in a way that this other um, sense of, of the kind of blind chance um, of the natural world, which maybe doesn't tell us anything about how we are to live. It's interesting what you said about homosexual sexual desire too. We have um, a guest on campus who's part of our forum Wesley Hill, who was talking last night about um, if you take Augustine of Hippo's idea of the order of love, or really in Augustine, it's more the disorder of love. You know, that it's very few of us ever get to the right, proper ordering of love for God and neighbor and oneself in healthy ways. It, it, ought, it ought not surprise us when you find that your desires for um, the goods of this life are not their own kind of intrinsic justification for satisfying them, right? Like we come into the world with unruly affections, as he said last night. And so part of our habituation is to reorder our desires in accord with God's intention and God's will. And that may not fully happen in this life for all of us. In fact, Augustine will be like, oh, it's definitely not going to happen in no, this life. No, it's not. So some of us maybe are more fortunate in the sense that those desires line up more naturally or circumstantially with God's intention and will given to us in creation. But for all of us, there's going to be a struggle to figure out what that habituation, what that discipleship pattern means. I want to press you a little bit on this looking to nature as moral guide idea though. And this is just my like inner uh, skeptic coming out on you for a minute is I think a lot of Christians are torn on this idea idea of can we appeal to nature as a source or guide for our moral lives, something like natural law in the mm-hmm. tradition, which is has you know Aristotelian pagan origins and Christian, uh, largely Catholic expressions, or do we look for moral guidance from the good book, from Scripture alone, that which has been revealed, right? And and maybe you're driving a wedge a little bit between the book of nature and the book of Scripture, but. Certainly the Ten Commandments aren't written on every tree, you know, here on our campus, right? They're written in stone by the the finger of God. So there's this tension of like, God gives us what we need to know by revealing it, especially to his people, uh, to Moses, to the prophets, and in the face of Jesus decisively and through the Holy Spirit. And then you can just look around at the world and see how you're supposed to live or look at the body. So the challenge, like particularly to your argument would be if the body has its own intrinsic moral purpose, um, even at the level of anatomy and the complementarity of the two sexes um, that gives us some kind of moral insight. Um, There would have to be some limit to that appeal on the basis of biology just by looking more largely at the animal kingdom, right? So you could say dogs have a similar kind of like differentiation of male and female in parts, and yet they are not held to the conditions of monogamy or lifelong fidelity or something. And certainly you wouldn't look to a male dog as like an exemplar as the model of male, 
you know, masculine, um, sexual ethics. So how, how, this is the old problem in philosophy of the is ought thing. Like you can see what is, but then can you actually move to the next level of naming what should be or what ought to be on the basis? Like, how do you, how do you deal with the is ought problem as you appeal to nature and its intrinsic moral order? And how do you wrestle with that sense of like, what can be known about the moral life through reason by looking at nature and what can only be known about the moral life by seeing what God has revealed uniquely in scripture? Well, um, sometimes, you know, compare and contrast is helpful. Like looking at a secular view um, can be helpful. Um, so there's a outspoken lesbian named Camille Paglia. Mm-hmm. A lot of Christians read her stuff because even though she's a feminist, she's sort of an iconoclast in that she does not think sex is a social construction. Mm. She says, no, 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 uh, nature made us male and female. And by the way, she's now come out as trans. Mm. <laughs> Up until now, she's been a lesbian, but recently uh, she's come out as trans. But anyway, um, so she says, no, uh, male and female are, you know, are rooted in nature. Mm-hmm. Nature... Um, you know, we are human. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, then how does she reconcile being lesbian or now trans? Because um, it's you know, how does she re- reconcile acting right. contrary to nature? And here's what she says. Um, and this is a direct quote. She says, "Fate, not God, hmm. has given us this flesh." We have absolute claim to our bodies and we do with them as we see fit. Mm-hmm. So do you see the logic? Yep. She's basically saying if our bodies are a product of mindless, purposeless forces, mm. then they have no intrinsic purpose. Mm-hmm. They have no moral message. We may do with them as we see fit. Mm-hmm. They tell us nothing about our identity. Mm. So she understands very well that there's a logical connection. Mm. You know, if we're a product of blind material forces, why Why respect the body? Mm. Why take our identity from our body? Why allow those kind of restrictions? Mm. We can do what we see fit. Mm-hmm. And I would agree with her if I were not a Christian. <laughs> yeah, right. You, know? you appreciate that forthrightness <laughs> and clarity, yeah. Yeah. Why <clears throat> Why put yourself under certain restrictions? Right. Um, but as I, I liked what you said earlier. Science itself shows that nature is organized by purposes, uh, by teleology, yeah, to teleology. use the technical yeah. term, you know, that there's a telos, there's a purpose. And on a very simple level, mm. um, eyes are for seeing, mm-hmm. ears are for hearing, uh, fins are for swimming, mm-hmm. and wings are f- for flying. In fact, the entire uh, development of the organism is directed by an inbuilt genetic blueprint or plan. Mm. It's obviously teleology in biology. And this is one of the difficulties for secular scientists, biologists, is there Mm -hmm. is clear teleology in biology. So even science itself shows that uh, life is is designed for a purpose, Mm -hmm. that that there's a plan, there's an order. Um, And that, and what Christians are saying is we will be healthier and happier when we live in accord Mm. with that plan, Mm -hmm. with that design. Uh, Another one of my anecdotes in, in my book, Love Thy Body, is a young woman named Jean mm. who lived as a lesbian for many years. <clears throat> and then, uh, but today is, is married and has two kids. And she wrote an article in which she said, I came to trust that God had made me female for a reason. Mm. And, I, and listen to the, her words. I love the way she phrases it. She said, I wanted to 
Um, I wanted to respect my body by living in accord with the creator's design. Hmm. By living in accord with the creator's design. So again, the the message is that Christians are not just saying, it's a sin, don't do it. It's not just a negative message. It's we respect the body that God made us. We live in harmony with it. We want an integration between mind and body. Mm. You know, when I the opening quote that I had from the BBC documentary where mm. transgenderism is a war between the mind mm-hmm. and the body, that is alienation. You know, that is internal disjunction. Mm. And what the Christian ethic is is saying is we want to be, you know, integrated, not, integrated. not disintegrated, but integrated. Yeah. We want to have a um, harmony, holism, between mind and body. Uh, and so that, that that would be the positive way of expressing the Christian yep. perspective. Yeah. You say that that modern form of dualism or alienation between soul and body or mind and body shares resemblance to some ancient forms of dualism that the early Christians had to work out. What are those and what can we learn from those early sort of encounters with dualism? Yeah, I, I love this because you know we're not we're not facing this for the first time. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. Um, the ancient, the, the early Christian church faced an ancient Roman Greek culture that was also that also held a dualism um, that that had a low view of the physical world for mm. very different reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, but it was Gnosticism, mm. it was Neoplatonism, it was Manichaeism. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Augustine was a Manichae. Yep. And all of these all of these isms. <laughs> Hmm. said that the this world, uh, our body, the physical world, um, is a realm of death, decay, and destruction. Right. And the goal of salvation is to escape from this world hmm. um, into some higher realm. Um, and in, and that co- in this historical context, Christianity was nothing less than revolutionary because it said, well, the, uh, first of all, creation, hmm. the Gnostics, the Gnostics taught that there were several levels of deity mm. and that it was the lowest God mm. and who was actually an evil God who created this universe because right. no self-respecting deity would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. <laughs> <laughs> so it was an evil God and because this was an evil creation. And mm. Christianity said, no, no, no. It is the highest God who is a good God. Mm who created this world, and therefore it is intrinsically good. Mm. And the fall does not totally negate that. You know, it's been marred. It's, it's like taking a beautiful masterpiece and scribbling on it. Mm. You could still see the beauty mm-hmm. underneath it. So this world is intrinsically good. Um, but secondly, the incarnation, mm-hmm. you know, that, that that same supreme deity mm. took on a human body and entered into this world. That was the greatest scandal, actually, in the mm. first in the first century. Was what this God entered into this realm? Yep. You know, the reason they had all these levels of deity was to separate the supreme deity mm-hmm. from this world. And now you're saying this God came into this world. Mm. Um, so the incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. And then when Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, we might say. He did escape <laughs> mm-hmm. the physical world as Gnosticism taught we should aspire to do. But what did he do then? Mm. You know, he came back in a physical body. To the ancient Greeks, this was not spiritual progress. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> this was regress mm. because they literally said, who would want to come back to the realm of the body? Mm. 
So the, uh, as Paul puts it, the physical resurrection is utter foolishness to the Greeks. Yeah, right. Foolishness to the Greeks. And then, of course, at the end of time, what is God going to do? He's not going to scrap this world as if he made a mistake the first time around. Mm. Like, whoops, you know, let's try something else. Now he's going to restore and renew this this world, the new heavens and a new earth. And we will live on that new earth in restored bodies. So they, all the way back to the Apostles' Creed, Christianity has affirmed the resurrection of the body. Mm. So I, I just have to tell you, if, if you haven't studied other philosophies and religions, there's nothing like this mm-hmm. <laughs> in any other philosophy or yeah. religion. Mm. It is an astonishingly high view of the physical yeah. realm. Christians should be absolutely excited right. <laughs> about this. You know, their message should yeah. be, look at this wonderful mm. religion that teaches such a high val- high view of the human body, of its yeah. dignity, of its significance, of its value. Mm. I mean, this should be our main message. How do we as a culture, now I, I love that, and I hope our listeners are celebrating the goodness of the body. And I love in the book how you draw the thread between that doctrine of the integrity of body and soul, the inherent goodness and dignity of the human person, which includes the body and the way that changes how we might think about abortion or euthanasia or homosexuality or transgenderism. Um, I guess in some ways it feels like the goodness of the body is up against the goodness of the individual's will and choice and self-assertion. That's what a lot of these debates feel like. The the goodness of the mother's autonomy and choice and agency over her own body trumps whatever goodness and integrity and dignity this body of the, the baby or the fetus might have. The goodness of you identifying with some other part, your soul telling you something else about yourself that your body is out of joint with as, as a transgender person, how did we get there? Like put on your Francis Schaeffer kind of cultural apologetics app. How do we get to the point where the will and choice and self-assertion trumps the goodness or the inherent dignity of the body itself? Postmodernism. <laughs> Postmodernism. <laughs> Is that, does that yeah. question make sense? Oh yeah. 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 Well, um, uh, let me answer, uh, there's two ways to answer that. Let me answer the easier one first. Okay. <laughs> We need to be reading what the secular people say. If we want to have an effective communication to the secular world, we need to read what they're saying. What mm. are they saying about, about, about abortion? Basically, the, the, you know, the two-story mentality, the body versus the person, plays in this way. Um, the secular bioethicist agrees today that the fetus is human from conception. Mm. The evidence from DNA, from genetics is just too strong to deny it. Just read any embryology textbook. Mm-hmm. So if you read this, the secular bioethicists, mm-hmm. they agree life begins at conception. So how do they get around that mm. to, to affirm abortion? Well, what they say is, well, the fetus is human up until a certain point. And then, you know, and so it's basically in the lower story, right? What we know by science, what mm. we know by you know, genetics, mm-hmm. by biology, the fetus is human. But then somehow it jumps into the upper story yeah. <laughs> and becomes a person. <laughs> mm. And the person is usually defined in terms of cognitive abilities, you know, mental abilities, mm. so some mm-hmm. sort of level of cognitive functioning, self-awareness, and so on. Mm. And so there's the two-story divide. Yeah. Is that the the if you can be human at one point but not a person until sometime later? Yep. Then clearly these are two different things. And so uh, what the bioethicist says today is as long as the fetus is on, is merely human, mm-hmm. merely mm-hmm. human, 
Um, it has no value, dignity or significance, and certainly does not warrant legal protection. Mm. Um, it, it can be um, killed for any reason or no reason. Mm. It, it can be um, tinkered with genetically. You can do scientific exp experiments on it. You can pick pick through for uh, for sellable body parts, mm -hmm. uh, as Planned Parenthood does, and then toss it out with the other medical waste. Mm. And that is how medical journals describe the fetus, mm. as medical waste. Mm. So, so who has a low view of the body here? What, what they are really saying is merely being human is not enough for human rights. Hmm. Because they are acknowledging that the fetus is human and then saying it has no rights. Hmm. So this is a huge change in people's understanding of human rights. You can be human and not have human rights. And of course, euthanasia is the same, same reasoning, but backwards. Hmm. You know, if you lose a certain level of cognitive functioning, you know, the, the upper story, if you now you exist only in the lower story. In fact, you'll find bioethicists will say, if, if you lose a certain level of cognitive functioning, you are only a body, mm. only a body. And at that <coughs> stage, you know, your food and water can be withheld. Your treatment can be stopped. You know, you can be unplugged. Mm. Your organs can be harvested. Mm -hmm. and so once again, you know, they're not denying that this, this person is still human. Mm-hmm. You didn't become an alien species, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but you have no human rights. If, right. you, if you lose a certain level of the upper story and you exist only in the lower story, you no longer have human rights. So this is, this is huge. Right. We still think we have human rights just because we're human. Mm. But since 1973, which was Roe v. Wade abortion decision, we do not mm. have human rights just because we're human. Right. And that's the challenge, I mean, of the two-story view. I think that's exactly right is... For, for naming what human dignity consists in or where the rights, you know, sort of begin or end, you have to like pick some uniquely human capability or something to pin them to. If you don't have the integrity view, just the inherent divinely appointed purposeful connection of soul and body, it's like, well, there's something that we'll call humanness that um, entitles you to these rights, but we no, need to be able to identify personhood, personhood right? Is, yeah, so right. humanhood no longer matters. That's it's the important. Yeah, it's personhood. It's mm. actually called personhood theory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it, you're not. You don't have any rights until you until, until or unless you're a person. Right. But then you're endlessly in this debate about what the capabilities are. And then that, how do you define it? How do you define it? Right. right. Yeah. As soon as you separate personhood from being human. Yeah. Then the question is, how do you define it? And to tell you the truth, every bioethicist yeah. puts the draws the line in a different right. place. Yeah. Because you see, once you're in the upper story, you know, to keep that two story metaphor, mm. Mm. you know, the lower story you're biologically human, but in the upper story you're you're a person. Yeah. Um, once you divide those, well, every a bioethicist defines it differently. You mm. do not find any common any commonality <laughs> yeah, sure. among the bioethicists because it becomes subjective. It becomes arbitrary. Right. If it's not connected to biology, what is it? What is it based on? Right. You know, Some so level it, of rationality, and then you get into folks with disabilities. How do you define their dignity rights? And right. Endlessly. It becomes well, it becomes arbitrary because how do you have an objective criteria criterion if you've you know, throwing out biology. Right. So let's go back to the ancient um, analogy with the early church and then think about the contemporary world and we'll lend it, we'll land it here. We could go on forever. This is so good. But you say one of the unique things about the high view of the goodness of the body in the early church that distinguishes it from the ancient Greco-Roman pagan, you know, mythology, Platonism, or even like a, a, a heresy like Gnosticism is sense of the intrinsic goodness of the body, the integrity, 
that gives Christians a reason to act in the world, you say. It gives Christians a reason to look for the reign and the kingdom and the love of God to take shape in the here and now. Now, we're certainly not pretending that we're bringing on the kingdom eschatologically in the present, but the resurrection of Jesus and the goodness of his redemption, which is already and not yet, gives us a different vision for social action, a different way of care in the world and concern for the, the material as much as the spiritual. Um, and you say that's part of the winning of their argument with the Roman world is their love for one another and the way that they cared for one another and for the world. I think in some ways it's really easy to name all of the, or not, it's not easy. It's challenging to name the secular ideology around the two-story view and the separation of personhood in the body. But once you get there, you want to turn to the Christian community and say, here's how we can think about these things and argue when necessary, but here's how we can live these things out. Here's how we can witness to our own view of integrity to show the world a different way, because maybe the world is confused and they're in the two stories and they can't see straight. So how do we embody and live differently around these moral issues? What practical like clues and cues can you give the church to live out this view of integrity around these issues? I know it's a big question. <laughs> um, you know, N.T. Wright makes the point you just made, um, which is it was e it's easier to be a dualistic Christian. Okay, what do we call it in the Christian world when we have this metaphor of two stories? We call it the sacred secular split. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so this is somewhat familiar to us already mm -hmm. that, that there is in the Christian world, there has been a notion that, you know, the spiritual things are in the upper story. The sacred is the upper story. The secular is the lower story. So the sacred includes, you know, God and the spiritual realm and going to church and going mm -hmm. to Bible studies mm -hmm. and so on. And so, you know, that's sort of the sacred realm. And mm -hmm. as Chris Christians have often thought of uh, the Christian life in that dualistic sense, that it's the spiritual realm that's, that matters mm. and the secular world it doesn't matter as much, and Christians often have not even known how mm. to bring that Christian perspective into the secular realm, into, in, into their their job, their vocation, the realm of politics, so you know our everyday our everyday world mm -hmm. is sort of on the other side of the line. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, this is the main reason. By the way, this is the main reason that Christians have had a hard time communicating with the secular world because we're stuck in the same dualism. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. We have we have it too. And so, um, and, and, um, but N.T. Wright used to say, uh, uh, one of the, it, it makes it real easy for Christians, therefore, not to get involved hmm. in, in fighting for justice, hmm. you know, in fighting to help people in this world, because this world doesn't matter. Hmm. And he said, the, you have to get rid of the dualism to get, give justification for why we work for justice, why we work for, um, you know, to, to make things better in this world, right. to 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 um, to work for um, you know mercy ministries and so on, because sure. the body matters. Yep, the body matters in this world too. So it does make a huge difference in terms of helping Christians get out of that sacred secular split. And here's how one of my students put it: She said, "Growing up in the church, I was always taught spirit good, body bad." Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And when I use that in my talks, people always go, yeah, that sort of summarizes it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. But it does mean that Christians have then used that as a way of not being involved in, in 
working mm. for good, for, you know, for in, in politics, in char- works of charity and so on in this world, mm. because it's like, well, this world doesn't matter. You know how I, I heard it when I was growing up was why polish the brass on a sinking ship? Mm-hmm. You know, if the physical world is <laughs> not going to be around, you know, why bother? Mm. Um, so yes, getting out of the sacred secular split is the key mm-hmm. to helping mm-hmm. Christians um, live out a full Christian life that acknowledges the the importance and the value of the body of the physical realm as God created it, acknowledging that this is God's handiwork. That you know the stewardship of the body mm. is a way of honoring the God who created the body, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so realizing that that is part of what it means to have a Christian worldview. You know, people ask, what, you know, what do you mean worldview? You know, cause sometimes that's, that itself is kind of an esoteric word. Sure. Yep. You know, Schaefer kind of popularized the word worldview. And I still get people saying, well, what does that even mean? Well, it's actually kind of simple. It just means Christianity applies to the whole world. Mm. <laughs> that it gives us a perspective, a view mm. of the entire world. It's yep. not stuck in the sacred realm. Uh, and I, I still think that... Um, Chief was right that that is the main barrier mm. to Christians having a positive impact in their world. Is, yeah. I'll have to tell you, I talk to Christian professors, okay? I'm in the academic world now, right? Mm. <laughs> I talk to Christian professors sometimes even now who don't think Christianity applies to their field. Mm. You know, they teach biology or they teach history mm. or whatever. And I talk to them and they say, no, I, I go to church on Sunday. You mm. know, I mean, it's, their faith is real to them. Yep. I don't deny that at all. Mm. Um, but then when they step into the classroom, they just teach from the secular textbooks. And they do not know, <clears throat> they, mm. and they do not necessarily even accept yep. that there is a Christian perspective in their field, mm. in the field that they teach. There was actually, a, um, let's see if I can remember the numbers. There was a study done. Mm. Um, several years ago now, I think it was 2007, something like that, but it was a very large study of Christian colleges. Yeah. This, uh, the, um, and the conservative Christian colleges, the CCCU. Mm. Uh, what is that? Coalition of Christian Colleges and Universities. Mm-hmm. So these are the, these are the um, uh, more conservative Christian colleges. Less than 50%, about 50%, mm. about 50% of the professors answered yes they knew they were confident in bringing a Christian perspective on their field. Now, when Christian parents send their kids to a Christian college (laughs) Mm. and spend all that money, they are not thinking that their kids are going to get maybe half, maybe only half their professors Mm. are going to know how to bring a Christian perspective into their field. Yeah. uh, When my book Total Truth first came out, uh, I was... Um, so I, I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, mm-hmm. and I had some friends who worked on Capitol Hill, so they uh, organized a book launch in the Senate office building mm. <laughs> right on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I gave a talk on my book, Total Truth, and when I was done, somebody stood up and said, it was the chief of staff for a congressman, mm. and he stood up and said, I lost my faith at an evangelical college. Mm. And so, of course, I had to ask him his story. Yeah. And he'd gone to a Christian university, and he happened to hit the 50% who didn't. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, who didn't have an answer. Sure. Um, he was studying politics, right? He was aiming to work in Washington, which mm. is where he was. Um, and so he's taking political science and sociology and so on. And he he said, not one of, not one of my professors brought a Christian perspective into mm. the classroom. 
even though this is a, uh, I won't name names, but this was a respected Christian college. Hmm. And um, he, he said, I even knocked on their door <laughs> during office hours and asked them, how do you relate your Christian <laughs> convictions right. to what you teach in the classroom? Mm. And he said, not one of them could give me an answer. Wow. Uh, and he said, eventually I decided Christianity didn't have any answers and I walked away. Um, and he said, I wasn't happy about it. No, like, he wasn't a rebellious kid yeah. you know, wow. who just wanted to party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he was sad. Yeah, he was disappointed. He was disappointed. Well, I can assure you that George Fox, it's 100% <laughs> of our professors know. Um, I hope <laughs> I hope that's true, but I do. It brings up so bonus question. I know we're gonna end, but you you landed on my favorite topic to talk about, which is the integration of faith oh. and learning. And the question I think that I have to ask when I look at a stat like that, mm-hmm. or I look at the incoherence of so many of the curriculum, you know, or core curricula that we offer in terms of just disciplinary knowledge in different directions, and you take it off the buffet menu, and then you get your major and get on with it. I think there's always like a need in every age to reimagine how you introduce students to total truth, to a whole picture of how faith illuminates every aspect of reality and all that there is to be known. And so a figure like Schaefer is kind of this prophet in the wilderness who does it in a commune in Switzerland. You know? <laughs> um, but I also think it was the animating charter for the birth of the medieval university, the Protestant, you know, liberal arts college at Princeton or Harvard or evangelical ones like Wheaton or George Fox. So uh, wave your magic wand. Like we're in an emergency, I feel like in education right now, both in K-12 and higher ed. And we need a coherent Christ-centered perspective on everything. Like what, what do we need right now in education? What ought we to do? Yeah, um, I, I still think that the first step is helping people to overcome the sacred secular split. They don't mm. know they have it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wrote the book, um, How Now Should We Live, co-authored with Chuck Colson mm-hmm. and Harold Fickett. And after that book came out, I realized that one of the biggest, you know, it was on Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. And this, as it came out, I realized People aren't getting it. <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we wrote this book, you know, this two-inch thick book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and people aren't getting it. So mm. that my next step was, why aren't they getting mm. it? And that's why I wrote Total Truth. Interesting. Because I be- began to realize the reason people don't get the Christian worldview is they are stuck in the sacred secular spirit and they don't know it. Mm. And the hardest thing or the first step is to help them to even recognize that they think that way. Um, like I said, even uh, you know, I, I talk to when I talk to academics, and um, uh, just one example, I was talking to a history professor, and I not long ago, and I talked about you know bringing a Christian perspective in my, into the classroom, and he looked at me blankly hmm. and said, "No, I don't do that." Hmm. And he was teaching at a Christian university. Hmm. And I thought, they don't even know <laughs> mm-hmm. that they're doing it. Um, so, and, and here's the thing. This is why we need to also understand the secular view, the secular worldview, because we are surrounded by secular culture and we are going to be influenced by it. Mm. And so when I talked about this two-story split, um, it being, you know, in secular academia, it's called the fact-value split. That has been the dominant way of thinking all through the 20th century. Mm. Uh, it, it came out of logical positivism mm-hmm. to put a label on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
Christian philosophers say it was very hard to be a Christian philosopher during the 20th century because logical positivism was so dominant. Mm. And what made logical positivism different was this. Up until then, I mean, it it goes back to Kant. The split goes back to Kant. Mm. But many secular people before that would say, oh, Christianity is false. But if, as long as they still said it was false, you were in the realm of true and false. Mm-hmm. And you could talk about reasons and arguments and evidence and logic. Mm-hmm. What made logical positivism different was they said, no, it's not true. Christianity is not even true or false. It's mm-hmm. meaningless, cognitively meaningless. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be meaningful to you personally. Right, yeah. It might give you a nice sense of, you know, get you through the night. Sure. But it's cognitively meaningless, by which they meant... It does not actually assert any truths. The only the only actual truth claims are things that can be des- tested scientifically. Mm. And so if it can't be tested scientifically, it's not actually even a truth claim. It's just yeah. an expression of emotion. Right. I mean, this is, you know, emotivism in, morale, in mm. moral theory was Christian, uh, that moral claims. Well, if you say this is wrong, slavery is wrong. Yeah. You're really just saying, I don't like it. I disapprove. Right. Or boo. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's sometimes called the boo hooray. <laughs> the, the boo hooray <clears throat> view of, of morality. Uh, boo this, hooray that. Yeah. So it's not making a cognitive claim. It's expressing an right. emotion. And so that is what made logical positivism so difficult for Christians is that many of them didn't understand that the secular world was now no longer even saying that Christianity was false. They are mm. saying it's cognitively meaningless. Mm. So that was, it's pretty hard to make a claim when the other side, you know, if the secular person mm. has imbibed that fact-value split. Mm. And by the way, value is important to define too. I have Christian students who sometimes say, well, wait a minute, you know, we're about defending Christian values. You know, we can't give up that term. And I say, no, it it was Kant. <laughs> it, was, it was the philosopher Immanuel Kant who gave us the word values. Mm. And it's not a Christian term. Mm. It came from the secular world and it literally meant whatever you value. Personal, private opinion. Yeah. You personally or your group, your you group, know, right. what you value, mm. what's important to you. I mean, mm. values clarification. Remember that in, in education? Yeah, that was right. what, The whole premise was you have your values, I have mine. You right. know, what's important to you? And so I have to help my students understand, you know, you might not want to use that yeah. term. Yeah. <laughs> so that when, when we talk about the fact-value split, you have to understand that they don't mean like objective moral truths. Yeah. They mean personal preferences. And it was been, it's been very difficult for Christians to understand that when they talk to a secular person about Christianity, you know, we think we're making an objective truth claim. We think we're making a claim. No, God really exists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, these things are true. <laughs> the secular person immediately puts what we're saying into the upper story mm. of personal values yep. and thinks, oh, you're telling me what makes you feel good. Right. Oh, and you you tell me what is you know your personal comfort you know like you know you do this instead of drugs you know <laughs> right exactly it's been banished to that upper realm of personal opinion or choice and or that's will. the knee jerk unreflective right. stra- you know response when you start talking about Christianity and so that that's what Schaefer was trying to help people understand when he said the biggest barrier to communication is that split view of truth. And not just with secular people, but your own kids. Mm. That was one of the uh, emphases that Schaefer had was, look, this is why you 
white Christian parents mm. cannot talk to their own kids because mm. their kids have absorbed the fact value split right. from the secular world. Yeah. And so they too are thinking, you know, personal values. Yeah. They're not thinking truth, you know, objective, real world right. truth. Yep. And yet that upper realm of personal value, opinion, hunt for meaning is still alive and well. I mean, our culture is talking about the search for meaning, a purpose-driven life. Um, and the irony is, say, you know, whether you're a secular or religious person, if you ever do find purpose or get apprehended, or if you ever do find meaning or purpose, it feels like being apprehended by something which is not you, something beyond yourself. So that those are the really meaningful things is when you actually give up your own sense of self and choice and will uh, to a cause which is much bigger than you. And of course, presume there is that you're now outside of the realm of the purely subjective. It's exactly. bigger than you. It has some objectivity. It has something. Um, and so I think as Christians, we have a reason to be clear-headed about the the evidence and the arguments for what we believe, and then to continue to appeal to only God who can apprehend people uh, as individuals or a culture. And so I hope I hope that he uh, he helps us in that. Yeah. Well, the, the I sometimes get people who misunderstand what I'm saying. Like in in my book Total Truth, they say, "Oh, you're saying Christianity belongs in the lower story." No, we want to get rid of the split view exactly. of truth. Exactly. Both stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the split view of truth that we're That's wanting good. to get rid of. It's important. Yeah. And so, yes, of course, when we talk about meaning and purpose, we are talking about right. Uh, something beyond the subjective. Right. And I think that's the, if you look at the success of certain online popular kind of personality intellectuals, it's often in the realm of psychology where people can kind of try to at least make the floorboards permeable between the two by appealing to evolutionary, you know, psychology for bases of human behavior or something like that. Because what that does in people's minds is it opens the possibility of what you've been feeling mm -hmm. and what you like you know, what your determinative sense of selfhood and what you're aiming for actually might be rooted in nature and reality. Just that very thought is so shocking to the modern mind that it's not just this pure subjective realm of relativistic personal whim. And then down here is the hard stuff of science. And so again, not to mm -hmm. say anything about pop psychology one way or the other, but I think Christians have a reason to understand how those floorboards are not just permeable, but they're false they're and false. to be speaking in a way that brings life uh, together and Christian educators where you're deep diving into all these subjects should be the ones who are best at integration. Yeah. That, yeah good point. That, and so the, the, the negative critique is the split view of truth. It, split view of truth is false. The positive is how do we recover right. the notion of an, of a, you know, a holistic truth of an integrated truth of, you know, with a, like you said, yeah. questions of meaning and purpose and questions yep. of objective exactly. scientific truth. You know, it's all, it's, it's all, all one, one. Yep. one integrated system of truth. That's the next step is really understand. And, and uh, like you say, I'm not sure we're there yet. <laughs> I know, right. And it will be intellectual work and practical work to put mm -hmm. into place as a Christian community. Dr. Percy, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you today on George Fox Talks Theology. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream things on your phone or computer. Check us out on the web at georgefox.edu slash talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. 
And we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash George Fox Talks. 